This is the Seminole Wars Authority. Hello and welcome. In the middle of August each year at St. Francis Barracks in St. Augustine, two elegant mules pull a caisson, symbolically carrying the remains of the soldiers who died in the Second Seminole War. The procession they lead commemorates the first reinterment of soldiers in August 15, 1842. The commanding officer in charge of military operations in Florida, U.S. Army Colonel William Worth, declared an end to hostilities and called for the remains of the fallen to be gathered together and transported for burial at St. Augustine. He detailed that the caissons be pulled by elegant mules. Emmett and Tater are the two elegant mules with whom Thomas F. and Denise Fitzgerald provide to offer solemn pride for fallen military veterans today. In this episode, Tom Fitzgerald joins us to discuss what he and his wife do for deceased veterans, as well as everything you might want to know about caring for two elegant mules who lead the funeral processions. Tom Fitzgerald, welcome to the Seminole Wars Authority. My pleasure, Patrick. Tom, as we begin, set the stage for us historically. At the end of the Second Seminole Indian Wars, there was no surrender, no treaty. The Seminole War cost quite a lot of money. The soldiers of the battles had indicated, why did we fight this war? No surrender, no treaty. They said, we got to do something for these falling soldiers. Uh, I understand that there was about 10% of the American fighting force lost in these wars, not just in the battles, but from famine or, or, or disease, etc. So they were kind of ordered or generally wanted to do something for those fallen soldiers. So they hired contractors to go around to the battlefields fought in those six years to reinterior those soldiers and give them a proper burial. And they hired contractors to reinterior them through day battlefield and others to put them on wagons. And they put American flags over them and mules actually transported them to St. Augustine, where they had scheduled that parade on August 15, 1842. Why were they using mules instead of horses? Probably what they had at the time. So they embellished because there may be, I'm speculating, but it may be uh, one of those situations where, oh, mules, why don't they have horses? In those days, you used what you had. In my opinion, it was just one that they embellished to elegant mules. There's no such breed as elegant, but elegant is an embellishment of very well-groomed, prideful. They've taken pride to clean and dress it up to lead this type of procession. The term elegant distinguishes it from, say, a field mule. Yeah, field mule would basically be like a, most would think a plow mule where it's not groomed, the mane is hanging over, ears are heavily hair, fur, and, and the ears would not trim, muddy, dirty, that sort of thing. Elegant would be certainly of better stature, not as thick or drafty as uh, maybe a plow mule, more of a thoroughbred type mule, and those, those are the types of mules that I have as well. Why would they choose mules? Aren't they ornery and stubborn? and uncooperative when you need them to move? I've seen the movie Patton, held up an entire tank column. I absolutely disagree. I've had mules for 20 years. I think the hybrid across between the donkey and a horse is the mule, and they cannot reproduce, by the way. But back to the point, they are very intelligent analysis, like a purebred dog. They have hip problems, they have 
They've kind of been bred, so to speak. But when you usually misbreed, you usually get something a little healthier. In that case, they're harder to train. But once they're trained, they're very solid. They'll remember forever. But back to the point of stubbornness, not stubborn at all. It's the inability to communicate with these animals where you would say, hey, come here. And normally the mule might take a lead line and come to you and then it may see something that it doesn't like or it's not certain about and uh, the human factor gets in there and says hey get over here and then you escalate your voice and then you start screaming and pulling and a mule is just going to dig in their hoofs and not do anything and that's where the stubbornness comes in because you're not communicating well and they are very self-preserving they are not going to do anything to hurt themselves or put themselves in danger. But once they're trained to do so, as we've done in parades and on battlefields, they do quite well. Now they stipulated that they would use elegant mules. What's the distinction? I think it was grooming. Grooming and conditioning, they looked prettier, maybe a prettier style mule, but they were well-groomed, maybe bathed and clipped up so they looked more presentable, very similar to a soldier or sailor or marine that is going to an inspection. They're going to have a fresh haircut. They're going to be very well groomed, etc. And a field mule or plow mule wouldn't be quite appropriate for a ceremony that is honoring the dead that have fallen in battle. Yes, correct. And we, we want to honor the dead by having a high level of detail for them, not just a superficial, yeah, we're going to interior them and that's it. But we, we did it out of respect. When you present, you have Emmett and Tater, your two elegant mules. How many did the Army employ during the first commemoration in 1842? I actually understand there was five mules pulling five wagons, and in the first wagon was Major Dade and his men that they could find during the reinterments. I believe it was five in team altogether, and the wagons were pulled. In the very first wagon had the remains of the soldiers that fell at Dade, the subsequent ones they had from other battlefields throughout Florida. The ceremony took place at St. Francis Barracks. How has that changed over the years? At the time, it was a barrack cemetery up of Marine Drive, which is now our National Guard headquarters for the state. So Marine Drive there on, on the corner where the oldest house is, they actually came from the north side down Marine Drive, down about a block south to at the time, St. Francis Barracks Cemetery, because back in the 1840s, that's where the barracks for the soldiers were. Many had family members or soldiers that did not perish in the Seminole Wars were already buried there. So interesting enough, it became the oldest national cemetery after it was commemorated, but it's not the first. Of course, Gettysburg was proclaimed probably about 20 years after that. And then they later came back and said, we're going to make the St. Francis Barracks Cemetery a national cemetery. So now that is called the St. Augustine National Cemetery. In the procession, they had the public following, and they had military and the public, and also some music of the time playing as they proceeded to the cemetery. Tom, how did you and your wife, Denise, get into raising elegant mules? <laughs> It's very interesting. I get to blame this one on my wife. When we got together, we were, were building our house and our barn. She had had horses since she was 13 years old. I never had horses. When we got together, she said, I'm going to get you a kid-safe horse so we get to ride and do things together because she's never going to give that up. 
we were at an event prior to finishing our little small farm here. I trailered them and I sat at the truck and trailer while they did their event, her and her girlfriend. And I saw this old couple with a pair of mules they were riding and a baby mule they were ponying behind with a long lead. And I just said, that's what I want to do. Nice and steady, not knowing a whole lot about mules 20 years ago. I told my wife, I said, I know exactly what I want to do when we finish our farm. I want to get a mule. And she said, oh, you're not going to get a mule. You'll look like a dork. And I said, well, I just, I'll, I'll get a big mule. Because like everybody else, they think of mules that they're like donkeys and they're miniature. But it's quite the opposite. They can get very big. Missouri and Kentucky and Tennessee, they have Belgian mules. And they're some of the biggest animals you can you can find. After we finished building the farm, I saw this mule up in Benel, and he was a Percheron mule, which is a draft-sized animal. He was 1,400 pounds at three years old. We ended up getting him, and I learned the next probably five or six years about mules and that they're not stubborn, and I need to learn to communicate, etc. My wife decided she, we did a lot of horse camping, and she had her Western Pleasure shows with her horse, her fancy horse, and I didn't really have a hobby with them, so I started doing cowboy-mounted shooting, and then I got involved with the Civil War reenactment on my mule. I was actually on the battlefield pulling a cannon. I got second mule team and then a third because <laughs> my first one didn't really want to pull, so I didn't feel comfortable with my first one pulling, so I ended up getting three. My wife wasn't really happy about that, but she's figured it out now. Uh, I taught the other two to pull and we were pulling a cannon on the civil war battlefield over in brooksville florida one of the rangers came out and said i need to introduce you to colonel joe nassinger retired colonel west point graduate he was the president of the north florida west point association generally he said what would it cost to bring the mules up to st augustine to do this solemn parade and i actually said after he told me about it and the history about it I said, nothing. We're going to volunteer to do that for you. And it's just, this is the eighth year that we finished commemorating that in the middle of August. Really, the mule was just something for my wife and I to do together, trail ride or camp out. We did quite a bit of that on the weekends. We'd stay out in the woods and ride with usually other groups. But as I started doing the Civil War thing, I started getting interested in cavalry formations and movements. Plus my background, I was a sergeant in the Marine Corps. I did six years and out. And so I had that history bug of the Marine Corps as far as Marine Corps history. They really ingrained that in boot camp to you. More of rote memorization back then. But really, you start understanding history when you live it through the Civil War. And as I started to learn more about the Seminole Wars, I started to get more involved. Still a novice, not a historian, but I do enjoy it. Another thing that led us to this is my brother was 47 years old, and he was an Army veteran and a federal marshal, and he died of cancer 12 years ago. He was my only sibling and my older brother, and it's the only thing that really hit me really hard. The federal government really honored him. They had a big black sedans, and they shut down Stone Mountain Freeway in Atlanta for his service. You would have thought the president was coming through, and very impactful. He was cremated. We brought his remains back to Florida, where he was buried in Bushnell, near Dade. The next year, they had actually announced Cape Canaveral National Cemetery being built in Mims, Florida, which is three miles north of us. Knowing that we had involvement with the Seminole War history in August, we decided to use the equipment and the history, volunteer and do services out there. And we've been doing those services out there 
in Seminole War fashion in, in the mid-1800 uniform motif since January 12, 2016. So a little over seven years we've been volunteering out there, and we had actually something you don't want to count, but we know that we have done over 600 honors for veterans at the National Cemetery. And we've also got involved with things that you would not expect. I never expect the mule would lead me to all this, but we were approached by the wreaths across America. They put a wreath on every headstone at Christmas time. We're not going to put a ceremonial flag drawn casket on her because it's just too solemn. We need to feel good at Christmas and that we remembered our loved ones. So I built an A-frame and we had seven ceremonial wreaths. Now it's eight with the addition of the Space Force. And I built a glass A-frame type thing with hooks on it. And we painted it in red hooks and we made the ceremonial race came in with elegant mules coming in to do the ceremony every year. We've been doing that since they opened. And then they started something called the Missing in America Project. This was something I knew nothing of. There's actually servicemen and women that were cremated. They usually had a contract to do that because the government does not pay for the cremation. They only pay for the plot at a national cemetery. They may have had arrangements. You get the little card in your wallet after somebody passes and the contract, they actually cremate you after if there's an autopsy involved. They were sitting on shelves. Every three months at the cemetery, we started honoring 24 at a time because it's all I could fit on my caisson. We would put 24 urns, 24 flags, and we'd have three or 400 people. One would take the flag, one would take each urn. We would have the active duty branches come out, and we would give them a proper burial with ceremony, plain taps, and rifle salute. And we would read their names as we put them into the columbarium wall. Interesting enough, we had one a year and a half ago at the end of January 2022. It was actually a World War I veteran that we interred at Cape Canaveral, and he had been on the shelf for 40 years. And if that doesn't get your fire going, I don't know what does when it comes to veteran advocacy. That was just a sin. We have done the research. There's a lot of veteran groups around. We believe in Central Florida, there's over a thousand of, of those situations in all the funeral homes and those that have executed the cremations there. So there is a group, Missing in America Project, if folks want to volunteer. A lot of it is the ancestry genealogy. The VA has said that if we get on ancestry and we show a, a path to find uh, the next of kin or a relative to let them know what we're doing, that's usually not the case. But we just exhausted every means to do that, and then we would give them a proper burial, and at least they have a benchmark or a, a mark of where that veteran is if any family member wants to find them. And they would put them in the columbarium wall rather than a vault in the ground so they could be easily moved. Like we moved my brother. My brother, after Cape Canaveral opened, I moved my brother's urn from Bushnell at Florida National over to Cape Canaveral. You just never know what path you're going to take in life and where you're going to end up. It was an evolution over probably five years. Again, as a hobby, we had a truck and a small weekender camper trailer that would haul the horses in the back, and we would have a small living quarters with a generator. So we had the truck, but as we got into more of volunteering, we had to get a new trailer, and I purchased a $20,000 elite trailer. It's a 24-box trailer where I could actually put the case on in the front and chalk it and strap it, and then there's a cattle gate in the middle. We close the cattle gate, and then the mules can come in the back part of that, the last 12 feet, 
and they can get in their harness and we would go wherever we need to go. I could get it all in one start. The original harness, I was trying to be very authentic and I learned the hard way that it was probably $12,000 in the mid 1800s and the civil war eras in the leather harness alone. And as we started volunteering, that harness was just not, <laughs> not fun. You had in Florida humidity, we literally had to saddle soap it and clean it four times a year, or it would get mold on it, even in an air conditioned facility in our tack room. We started with a $6,500 caisson from an Amish maker up in Montgomery, Indiana, Paul Raber. We were very successful with that just for the symbolism of the Seminole War, Solemn Parade, also what we were doing at the National Cemetery. We started venturing out with the trailer to do the American Police Hall of Fame. They've asked us to do it. The Vietnam's Veterans of America, they have a reunion in Melbourne. We actually have to transport to go do that every year where we would have a ceremonial casket and do that. So we became mobile in the first phase of our volunteerism, which again, sprung from our hobby. And then I started getting smarter, <laughs> a little smarter. I had a $30,000 investment for a 1869 Civil War case on the 60-inch wheels. Based on the initial experience that I had, I had to modify it. The original Civil War case on front axle was considered a limber, 60-inch wheels, and it had a ammo chest on it. The wagon behind it is actually called the caisson, and that had two more ammo chests and a spare pole and a spare 60-inch wheel on it. So we modified that to modern times. Caskets are typically 82 to 85 inches, but we did not do the two ammo chests on the caisson. We actually extended the bed out. We don't have any chrome on it whatsoever. I have copper sidewalls on it with copper balls and twisted wrought iron. We modified the wheels so it would not be a 3 8 inch steel tire around your wheel because it would make noise on the asphalt when we're doing these services and these historic events. We modified it to a channel, and then I actually had special tooling done that was over $3,000 just to be able to make the tires. That's just to tool it. And it's a solid cellular tire that goes inside the channel, and it makes it roll a little bit easier and quieter when we do these services. We made it all out of black walnut. The deck of the caisson, the back part, was all black walnut. The ammo chest is all black walnut with copper lining on top with copper nails, all done by a guy I got to be really good friends with, Ben Miller, up at uh, Miller's Cannon Works up in Parrotville, Tennessee. It's one of the most beautiful pieces I've ever seen. We painted it black because it really, in Arlington fashion, they have three World War One caissons that pull the veterans. There's usually two teams a day, Monday through Friday, and they actually do seven services each a day. Ours, is, is, as far as I know, is the only serviceable replica Civil War caisson that's used daily for these types of honors. We made it easy. We stuck with the Seminole Wars history. So when people ask us, they ask us all the time, why are you wearing that uniform? We wear the French blue trousers and the blue shell jacket that really was transforming at the end of the Seminole Wars into the Mexican-American Wars. So it was that uniform that was accepted and you move from the Shaco hat to more of the barracks type hat, which they still use today. We slightly modify it. In the first two years, we actually used the same uniform, the same wool uniform that we would use in St. Augustine to commemorate the Seminole Wars. 
I was a Marine. I'm a little slow, but I got a little smarter. So we actually made the same uniform with polyester and a cotton liner. And we have several of those, but we stick with the same uniform. And I use a uh, barracks cover and we use the same polyester material to take that off. And the blue actually goes with all branches. You can put blue at any branch. So we don't have a specific uniform for each branch of service. We just have the same uniform and we have several sets of it so we can dry clean and cycle as we go. But what we did do for a nice elegant touch of class is we had the cavalry blankets with two red stripes, blue with red stripes on them. And I had a three-inch Velcro circle that's sewn onto it. On the back of each three-inch patch for each branch, I put the sticky side of the Velcro and we had it stitched to the patch, back side of the patch, so we can actually put the branch emblem on the blankets so we don't have to have five sets of blankets. So that saves us a little bit of money. Currently, I'm on my third set of blankets because the red stripe will fade and they can get a little dirty. And it's probably more expensive to dry clean them. I think they're $150 a piece. And I think it's like $30 to dry clean them. So we found that we'll dry clean them twice. But when they start fading and getting a little warm, we just buy new ones. We get questioned all that. Why are you wearing that uniform? And we're able to say that the families typically will not, they may ask, but very few do, but usually they're the friends and families that are part of the services say, why are you wearing that uniform? Because they're usually have some military knowledge or have served themselves. Families typically do not want to know because it's impactful to them and it, to make prideful memories is our mission. We base it on the history of the Seminole Wars. We use this uniform because it was very historic to the United States in 1842, but more importantly, to Florida. And this is a Florida National Cemetery. So we're able to tell others and reach out to other people that, hey, there's more to this than just for a military escort. There's a lot of detail that goes into this to support our mission to transform the somberness associated with life's end into prideful memories. We want you to remember your loved one, especially your veteran, any of those that have sacrificed. We do that in a high detail or maybe even in an elegant detail. You offer a unique service. How did you get the word out about it? The words got out. My wife and I were very cautious. We didn't advertise because there's just one team and us in a local proximity. We didn't put out a lot of social media campaigns. We didn't really want to overpromise and underdeliver. So we just started that way because it was the right thing to do. We're close, we have the equipment, and it's our give back to our community. What happened is there's probably at least 30 funeral homes that have seen us out there. Now they call us and they said, hey, I've got a veteran family that the veteran's going to be buried at Cape Canaveral. Would you do the service? If I can schedule it, we'll do it. I think I've only, in seven years of doing them, we've only turned down four because of conflicts, but we really try not to say no if we can, because what we found is that we... Again, initially, we felt like it's the right thing to do. We want to give back to our community. We want to take out the somberness of life's end and, and turn it into prideful memories. But what we didn't expect, Patrick, is that what we got back, it, and it's not the money, it's what we got in our heart. We actually, we learned about veterans. We were invited to celebrations of life. We were invited to, and we got to know a little bit about the veteran that we honored. And that is extremely gratifying. A good example of that is Rear Admiral 
Eileen Dirks. She was the very first female general in the armed forces. She is really what started the Navy's RN program and made it so solid. Nixon pinned her star on her in the 70s. And after she retired from the Navy, she was a Lake Mary, Florida resident, and she stayed a big advocate for nurses and all kinds of scholarships and trying to recruit and promote nursing for another 30 years. So she's certainly qualified to be buried at Arlington, but she chose a very quiet service at Cape Canaveral. She never married, so her niece and nephew were the next of kin. They had called us. She knew of us. I don't know how, but maybe from Reefs Across America or somehow, but we did her service. We tried to keep it private, but the Department of Defense actually sent out the Navy Times, and they made a real big deal about it. I would have never really even known about Eileen Dirk and being the first female general if we had not taken the leap of faith in, in doing a community give back. Every year, the niece and nephew send us a, a, a card, and it just makes me feel good because they still remember their aunts. Before all this, what did you and your wife Denise do for a living? My wife was a crime scene technician for the city of Titusville Police Department. She retired nine years ago. After the military, I did. I was a police officer. I did some various things. I uh, went back to college at Florida Institute of Technology in Melbourne, studied mathematics, and I ended up working in Brevard County Schools, where kind of deviated a little bit from math and got into technology. So I was actually I retired two and a half years ago as the IT director for the county school district. But I was fortunate that in those years, my wife was retired and I wasn't, that the only time we really took off was a half day here or there to do a service at the cemetery. We really didn't do a whole lot of vacations while she was retired because I was still working and we both have really had just our hearts filled with our give back. My wife finally gets it after all that money spent. She really gets it and she wants to be an active participant in everything we do. I do it at Cape Canaveral National Cemetery. We're kind of going full time with that. We had a situation last Friday where we had a service, and then we didn't have anything scheduled till a few days later. So we just decided to go camping for three days. So we fit in our retirement time with the schedule of our request that we get. And typically with a casket service, we would only have two to three days notice, sometimes four, but typically that's how quick those come. But 90% of them are earned, and they're really scheduled two to four weeks in advance. And I even have a few already scheduled two months in advance into June. Tom, while you're primarily conducting these services at Cape Canaveral National Cemetery, you do get calls and invitations to other cemeteries within Florida and beyond. What are some of those? Yeah, very interesting. I received a call from Perry, Florida, which is right outside of Tallahassee, and they had heard the Seminole Solemn Parade of the Second Seminole Wars and saw a picture of the mules in the caisson somehow in some social media publication. I had a gentleman come all the way here, and he called me, and he had a in-law that lived in Melbourne, and he said he was here for a week or whatever, and he'd like to come out and see us and meet with us. And I had no idea. And I said, well, I have a service on this day. You can come out and stage with us, and you'll have to watch from where we do it. And he came out, and then uh, he followed us back to the farm after we did a service. 
he goes, well, now I'm going to ask a question. So he actually asked us to be the color guard for the Military Vehicle Preservations Association Chapter 1 in Florida, in Perry, Florida. They have a forest festival parade every year in October. And two years, we have actually used the limp, the front axle, the limber portion with the ammo box. And we have actually carried the colors for the MVPA, which is a great honor. We have 70 antique military vehicles behind us. We've done that twice. We go to South Titusville, where the Astronaut Hall of Fame is. There's also a Police Hall of Fame. It's right there by the NASA. And go and do that every fallen police officer week. And we do a ceremonial guide through the American Police Hall of Fame. Invite all of the fallen police officers' family for that year. They read their names as well as they inscript them on a wall, the murder of Vietnam wall in Washington. They're a great organization where they would raise the money to fly the families out here to remember those fallen officers. We do an impactful pass-through. We've done a lot of local cemeteries around here as well. We get interesting calls sometimes, and <laughs> but on to the really the most impressive thing that I've been invited to, second to the Seminole Wars, of course, and that is the American Revolution soldiers that they reinterred in Camden, South Carolina. In 1780, they had the biggest battle in the American Revolution in Camden, South Carolina. It was a British victory, and they have a battlefield preservationist foundation there. They knew there was some soldiers buried in a certain location that they had kept from the public. When they got the funds to do an archaeology dig, it was a couple of years ago, they actually found that there was 14 veterans there, and two were British and 12 were American militia. There was buttons and bones. It was about everything that was remained. But they were able to get DNA from each and start tracking that, and I believe they have the identity of two of the 14. And based on carbon dating and certain other tricks of their trade, they believe in the bone structure. One of the militiamen was 14 years old, and the other one they believe is about 16. So those were the two youngest, and the rest were a little older. They believe that these are some of the first veterans in the United States that pioneered our freedom. Pretty amazing. This one is going to happen on April 22nd of this year at 3 p.m. on a Saturday. We're going to be doing the procession. The old guard may be able to bring one case on and one team, and there's 14 to reinteer. So they've asked that I would follow and do some, and then they have a couple Civil War reenacting units, one from Tennessee and one from Virginia, that will also participate. So we will have four to five caissons. We'll have to see how that rolls out. It's not the best organized at this point, but we'll get there, and we'll do what's right for those veterans. They are ordering a World War I uniform, and I don't understand that, but I think they're trying to get everybody in uniformity. I'm bringing everything I got. My Mexican-American war uniforms, I'm bringing it all, mules, caisson, historic caisson, and we'll just roll with it because certainly if the old guard's involved, they will not be in World War dress. They'll be in modern dress. My view is just bring every resource we can up there and let's honor these veterans the best way we can. Sometimes planning gets overcomplicated, and keeping it simple is usually better. But the way I see it is I bring everything I got, authentic harness, the biothane harness, the dressy stuff that I have, we can pretty much ad hoc to any situation that comes up the day before. We're only going to have a couple days to rehearse and get all this together when I get up there on Thursday the 20th. You have insurance for the unexpected, but how do you keep the mules on task in unexpected settings? We're blessed that nothing has ever gone wrong. 
insurance is $1,800 a year just to volunteer. We're blessed that we never had a claim. We never had any issues. We put a lot of time in training in the last 11 years in these animals. And I've learned a lot in that process, the not to be too aggressive with them, more reassuring, and lead them, not pull them. Some of the interesting ones have been military flyovers. So we had a colonel that was the refueling commander of Patrick Air Force Base, and he retired. When I was 57, he was 57, and it hit me really, really hard because he retired and he lived in Vero Beach and he was riding his cross-country bicycle in downtown Vero Beach and he was hit and killed and he never got his first retirement check. It's an eye-opener. The general at that time, it was Patrick Air Force Base, the actual brigadier general called me personally and said, would you do this on Thursday? I think it was like on a Sunday. And I'm like, yes, sir, I'll take the day off. We'll get it done. The day before, the colonel contacted me and he said, Tom, how, how are your mules going to do? He was a refueling commander. He goes, how are your mules going to do with a C-130 refueling tanker and two helicopters and refueling simulation going over the colonel's body? The only thing I could think of is I said, at what elevation, sir? And he said, 500 feet. Of course, my eyes rolled and got big because I was on the phone, and I said, I don't know, sir, but we're going to find out. (laughs) We literally told the colonel, just make sure that the flyover occurs slightly in front of them so they can see the noise, because we have blinders on their bridles, so typically would be concerned about what's behind them. A mule is a really interesting animal. There's a lot more to it, but when their ears are pointed forward, they're very long. When they're pointed forward, they're focused on what's ahead of them. When their ears turn 180 degrees backwards and lay flat, they're listening to what's behind them. When their ears are flopping left to right and up and down, they're not worried about a thing in the world. So you really get to understand the animal. And usually when their head is down, their necks are down slightly, their heads are not elevated, they're nice and relaxed as well. So as we did the flyover, we made this turn, and they weren't quite in front of them where they could see them. They were kind of behind. And at the exact same time as their necks were low and relaxed, their heads lifted up, and each of their two ears turned to the back to listen to the aircraft at the exact same time, like radar. My wife and I were about 120 feet from the family, and we had our hands on the inside of their neck, scratching their necks, and we're like ventriloquists. We're saying, it's okay, boys. It's okay, boys. And those mules never missed a beat. They hit every step, in step. It was just amazing. We were so proud of them. That's a big undertaking. 500 feet seems like 100 feet. So that was probably the most memorable. On the more depressive side is just as memorable is those veterans that commit suicide. We have done more veteran suicides in in some active duty. We had a major at Patrick that was fought in three wars, and he was a helicopter pilot. He committed suicide. And when we draw awareness to how many veterans are committing suicide every, every day, 13 was the last count I heard. I hope it's less. That's just, it's it just mind-blowing that you can't do more about that. That's also memorable, and we love to honor those. We actually had one Air Force veteran that committed suicide, and he had befriended a female friend, not intimate or anything, and she had him change everything over to her as 
the wills and all that stuff. He did everything, and he still committed suicide. But when he passed, she was in his wills and all that to, to handle everything. But he did not change the serviceman's life insurance policy to her, which was, I think, it's quarter million dollars. She was upset about it. When the family wanted to interior their son, she wouldn't give him the ashes. The Air Force gets involved, and they really just don't like want to deal with this at all. So we literally did a service for the family, and we put a picture and a wreath around the urn holder that we have in the case on, and we actually honored him by pulling his picture because there was no remains. There's what they call a memorial wall where they literally would inscribe this airman's information on the wall in the memorial walk. There's a memorial walk that goes around the wall as well. Tragically, that is something that, you know, I wish we could change, but human nature is human nature when it comes to that stuff sometimes. With that, we're out of time. Tom Fitzgerald, thanks for joining us for the Seminole Wars Authority. It's been a privilege. It's a privilege to do what I'm doing. I want to thank everybody at the Seminole Wars Foundation, North Florida West Point Association, uh, also the Florida National Guard Headquarters, Allison, and the late Colonel Greg Moore, very inspiring. Everybody has led me to this, and they're part of what we do. And I just can't thank you enough for changing my life. All right. God bless. This podcast is copyright 2023. The Seminole Wars Foundation, all rights reserved. Find us on the web at seminolewars.podbean.com or seminolewars.us. Front and back bumper music courtesy of the U.S. Navy Band.